Welcome to That Good May Become with me, Laura Scappatici, where we learn to illuminate the esoteric in our everyday lives. Good morning, everybody. It's Laura, and I'm sitting in my beautiful rental house in California, and I've got a little vase of flowers next to me, and I cannot wait to jump into this first chapter. But let me say, appreciation comes ahead of everything else, and I want to thank those of you that have written to me with your interest and your observations. Um, I got a note from someone, I appreciated it so much, this heartfelt note from someone going through a really challenging year, saying they're so glad to remember that they can pull this book off the shelf, How to Know Higher Worlds by Rudolf Steiner, and find strength from it anytime throughout life, but especially in hard times. And I also got a text message from someone who tucked the book into their suitcase for international travel and they're taking it with them. And that's just absolutely beautiful. I keep getting messages from you on Instagram and Facebook and in my email box. Please keep sending them to me and let me know if I can use your name to share too, because that's what this is about. This podcast is meant to be additive, to have an additive effect to your reading and your ponderings um, around anthroposophy and this book in particular. And your comments and ideas are additive to my reading and my understanding. Yes, yeah, I can get this book off the shelf when I'm having a hard time. And yeah, I could take it with me when I'm traveling. These are all things to remember. So thank you. Um, we're doing this together. Here we go. All right, so today I'm going to talk about some of the themes in this chapter, um, the most poignant quotes to ponder. Um, I'm going to try to include page numbers or paragraph numbers when I can, um, my, my questions and reflections. So boy, man, he just kicks it right off in this chapter um, with these huge themes of agency and autonomy, um, reverence, having an inner world, strength, and despite the push and pull of the outer world, calm and certainty, the higher self as the inner ruler doesn't that sound so cool? Um, and then there's also this really interesting thing about anger in this chapter too. And I think it comes up in other chapters as well. We'll have to see. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just like a mom sitting here trying to read this book with you. So you're going to hear me um, moving through it with my questions and my like, oh my gosh, like it took me, you know, an entire week to read the last four pages of this chapter. So we're all just going to be real with each other um, and bring this mood of reverence to it. The overall mood that we need to do this, to, to achieve these capacities, um, is in this chapter. And it's why. Why do we want to have this overall mood? Why do we even want to go on this journey? And to me, that's to not just to become better people, parents, teachers, or community members, not just for our us and our emotional life, but ready, big, big deal here for the evolution of humanity towards the good. You know, I, I mean, what would it mean for all of us if we could see unseen forces around us and in us? What if we could really perceive love, compassion, and the beings of nature, the presence of the spirit within each of us and the spiritual forces at work outside us? Can you imagine that? 
what would it mean if we could do that? If we could have those capacities to perceive it? Do you think we would turn guns on each other or we would pillage the earth or we would break each other's hearts? I don't think so. I don't think so. So as we develop these capacities, we're, we're helping humanity evolve. And that's why this book is so important to me right now. Here we go. Chapter one. Um, as any good writer does, you know, Steiner puts us right into the action from the very beginning, and he's giving us the conditions for developing our capacities. The very first sentence puts the whole thing into our court. The capacities by which we gain insights into higher worlds lie dormant within each of us. And then all we need to know is how to begin to develop these faculties for ourselves. So he's telling us that this book is in fact a workbook, an instruction manual, and for me, a powerful spiritual text that can guide us there. In the past, there were hidden mystery schools. That's what occult or esoteric implies, hidden. But he's telling us that now this knowledge is available to anyone. And if that's the case, why and how should one seek for something of whose nature one can have no clear idea? So why are you going to go looking for something that you don't even understand or can't possibly perceive? I mean, are we all just like, oh yeah, I know what clairvoyance feels like, or um, I understand what it's like to see the beings of the you know natural world, or no, we don't exactly know what that is, but yet here we are seeking it. Um, I would say he, he, you know, he really talks about the accessibility of it in this book too. Um, he says you know, we're not even asking the right questions here. It's not special knowledge. It's knowledge that is there for all of us. And it's no different. That's right. No different from other kinds of human knowledge and ability. It is a mystery for the average person only to the extent that writing is a mystery for those who have not yet learned to write. That's what he said. It's, we can just learn it just like we can learn writing. Now, I would say um, having been in writing school, there are different levels of writing. Um, I can write an email and you can write a bestseller. Those things are a little different. <laughs> but mostly, mostly the difference there is in how much you practice and your devotion to it. And yes, your teachers and who you surround yourself with. So we can all do this. Okay, I love, um, yeah, that he talks about accessibility. Like some people won't have access to the possibility of learning to write. And that is still quite alive and true in humanity today. Yet he goes on to say, but no one who seeks sincerely will find any barriers to achieving knowledge and abilities in the higher world. I think we know this is true. We know this is true with people of huge levels of trauma, um, people who have experienced depression. We know that some of these incredible spiritual leaders have come through those paths. So I think I think he's he's bang on here um, that it is accessible to all of us. Okay, here's a question for you. He talks about initiates next. What does this word mean for you? If you go in for this concept, who are modern initiates and what does that mean? I'd love to hear your take on that. Um, and then he talks about teachers and this universal law, spiritual teachers. And he says, the knowledge due a seeker cannot be withheld. The knowledge due a seeker cannot be withheld. Doesn't that sound like so Netflix fantasy series? Like it's so mysterious. Um, 
But then he also says, and this was a little, there's a little triggering word in here for me, the word qualified, but he says, but there is also another universal law that esoteric knowledge may not be imparted to anyone not qualified to receive it. Okay. So I don't know. I just keep getting like the old pictures of like, you know, caves and being buried underground for three days and you know, those, those kind of initiation things that we might imagine, but yeah, I mean, very cool. Very cool. I love, you know, that element of like mystery that's in there. Okay. Um, and then he goes on about the, the teachers and this universal law and says, the temples of the spirit were outwardly visible, but today when our life has become so unspiritual and my goodness, hasn't it? They no longer exist where we can see them with our physical eyes. Yet spiritually, they are still present everywhere, and whoever seeks can find them. Okay, so where's where's your temple? Where are you where are you seeing this? They're not; it's not visible to us with the spiritual eye, which is interesting because we definitely do have churches and holy sites, but where are they present for you? Okay, now he's going to really get into the conditions, and um, as I understood them, the conditions are the path of reverence devotion to truth and knowledge and we embark on this path quietly having a rich inner life and inner peace okay reverence let's talk about reverence uh here's here's a he he says it, it used to be easier for us when we were more connected to the spiritual world so if you have this idea of the evolution of humanity and in the beginning with humanity there was much more of like just this easy spiritual connection happening and we could you know just be connected to the angels or just this sense of god or spiritual beings and you know we know this from the historical records and the way that people interacted with the spiritual world but you know that's that's not so easy right now he gives us this quote that i think is inspiring when he talks about and he uses the word freedom which i know is also a triggering word for people this quote is one of the most poignant quotes to ponder for me Experience teaches us that we know best how to hold our heads high in freedom if we have learned to feel reverence when it is appropriate. And it is appropriate whenever it flows from the depths of the heart. Wow. Can you tell me about a time that you had reverence flow from the depths of your heart? Where were you when that happened? And I would say, that can happen when you're doing the dishes uh, also as well as at Yosemite or as, as well as at the birth of a child. Um, so I would, I would love to hear these experiences for you. And then there's this section, you know, I'm, I'm working at a Waldorf school right now, which is very exciting for me. Um, and it talks about reverence in today's world and children. And he gives this warning quote, I, this, I mean, oh my goodness, this morning quote, quote really lives so strongly with me because I can definitely do this. And, and when people around me do it, it makes me bananas too, you know? So here, here's the quote. Our civilization is more inclined to criticize, judge, and condemn than to feel devotion and selfless veneration. But surely as every feeling of devotion and reverence nurture the soul's power for higher knowledge 
so every act of criticism and judgment drives these powers away. This for me is so personal. Um, and I definitely fall into this. So I, I have a couple practices to kind of keep keep me on track. Um, one is my hashtag that I use on social media. Doesn't that sound funny? Um, something beautiful every day. Uh, and that is when I just try to notice beauty in the world and have reverence for it. Um, there's always something beautiful and interesting to see. And I don't want to destroy it by opening my mouth and complaint. It's so easy to complain. So seeing the good, you know, I can't always do it because I get grumpy and, you know, I don't get a good night's sleep and then someone irritates me, but I can feel the effects of that. I feel off track when I have that attitude and I feel on track when I am living in that space of reverence. You know, my personal feeling is validated here. It does give strength. And, and here's the quote that he offers in that validation. Experienced spiritual researchers know what strength they gain by always looking for the good in everything and withholding their critical judgment. This kind of relates to gratitude practice, isn't it? I know that's not cool and it's a bit annoying. Or maybe you guys think it is cool. Um, but people sometimes are like, ah, gratitude. Um, but it helps me really deeply. I can sort of feel this, you know, gray fog take over me when I'm not doing that practice, this lack of appreciation for life. But I can, if I can do it each morning before and before bed, so twice a day, recalling the best thing that happened that day before bed. And then, you know, in the morning, just kind of hands on my heart, like, oh, thank you for this body. And thank you thank you for the light coming in the window and thank you for this person lying next to me and um, thank you for my children and thank you for these flowers. Thank you for that bird. Um, I, then everything, everything is just more remarkable. And can, you know, it's, it's incredible that there are some people that just do this so naturally and they don't just do it with nature. They do it with people. Do you know someone that's like this? They notice everything and people and name it with reverence. Even if these people like get on their nerves, they're like, you know, I really see that person striving for equanimity, or I really see that person striving to be a good parent, even though like they were just screaming at their kids or something. Like there's just this way um, that some people do this. Do you have someone in your life like this, like an old granny or a young child that just has that reverence? If you do, oh my gosh, tell them, <laughs> watch them for a day. Um, I have reverence for those people and I definitely carry them, you know, inside me and in my heart. So that's reverence. Also, like your aura gets to be better colors. That's pretty cool. All right. Here's another quote. Um, I'm going to close this section and move on to rich inner life, but another quote to ponder. If I meet other people and criticize their weaknesses, I rob myself of higher cognitive power. So we're not just talking about like, oh, it's better to have reverence. It's actually going to cause a deficit, a spiritual deficit if you meet other people and criticize their weaknesses. I can totally feel when this is happening for me, not just because it morally it feels off, but I can feel it deplete me. 
And later on, he talks about words acting with the same force as a punch. And I can feel that fist pointed right back at me when I have that critical stance. So to sum it up, looking for good and having reverence gives you strength. Okay. How you guys doing? Talking a lot here. I hope you're doing okay. Um, we're going to move on to the second uh, condition, which is having a rich inner life. And on page 22, he has this quote, inner experience is the only key to the beauties of the outer world. And he gives this example of a landscape. And then he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, you can't just find this in the outer world. So he said, he gives a warning, a warning quote. And he does this throughout the book, these warning quotes. And I really appreciate them actually, uh, because in my head, I just want to, you know, I'm probably going towards what he's warning against. <laughs> so if we chase amusements and rush from one sense impression to the next, we will not find the way to esoteric knowledge. And then he balances that with this quote about pleasure. So he's, he's not saying don't have pleasure. If he, you know, in this, um, in our inner lives, but he talks about pleasure this way. If we seek only to enjoy, consume one sense impression after another, we will blunt our capacity for cognition. If, on the other hand, we allow the experience of pleasure to reveal something to us, we will nurture and educate our cognitive capacities. For this to happen, we must learn to let the pleasure, the impression, linger on within us while we renounce any further enjoyment, a new impression, and assimilate and digest with interactivity the past experience that we have enjoyed. Yeah, that's page 24. Super interesting to me. What is he talking about here? Okay, this just makes me think about like, if I've just watched Ted Lasso, and then my kids are come in and they're like, oh, mommy, let's watch this thing together. And I'm like, no, no, I just need to digest Ted Lasso. I just need to sit here with the goodness of Ted Lasso before I move to the next show. Or like if I hear a song and I just want to stick with that song, I want to like hear that song again and again, or just look at that one flower instead of going from one flower to another flower, to another flower, to another flower, like just to let one thing linger and my goodness is this hard like we can have like chocolate cake and then we can have ice cream and then we can have um candy and then we can have like there's so many pleasures this is a pleasure culture which is not bad in and of itself but without having this like deeper experience of the pleasure of the thing that's bringing us pleasure it can just be mm, fleeting Okay, so here's to some of this pleasure piece. As esoteric students, we regard pleasure only as a means whereby we can become nobler for the sake of the world. Pleasure becomes a messenger instructing us about the world. That's another most poignant quote to ponder for me. I just, I love that quote. And, you know, he's not saying you know, like flog yourself for sin, or um, he's saying, go into pleasure and experience it and experience it in a mindful and awake way. You know, I, I lived at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, right after college for a little while. And there were these people that would sit at the table for lunch and they would close their eyes and eat. They were like, oh, you could taste it so much better if you're closing your eyes. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try this. I tried everything. I was like doing kirtan and you know, grew out my armpit hair, but, um, which is great. I wish I had just left it like that, <laughs> but I digress. Um, just got to 
break up the quotes with a little bit of silliness, but um, it works to close one's eyes and taste. I can taste it better. And I'm sure there are many people that can taste it fully without closing their eyes, just as they can meditate without closing their eyes. Um, but it is a nice practice just to have that one experience of pleasure. I'm going to um, make some recommendations for exercises once I get through this, but um, this will be one of them, this exercise of pleasure. I'm just going to say it now in case I forget it in the end. Try to just sit with the one pleasure that you've had. Okay. And then here's a law. There's a law he talks about here. Every insight that you seek only to enrich your own store of learning and to accumulate treasure for yourself alone leads you from your path. But every insight that you seek in order to become more mature on the path of ennoblement of humanity and world evolution brings you one step forward. Okay, so that's that's the law of this esoteric schooling. It's and I and this is what I was talking about before. It's it yes, it is for us. Yes, it is for me to become a better mother and a better person in my community. But this is really about the ennoblement of humanity and world evolution. All right. Back now. Inner peace. Everybody's got this already, so I don't even know why I'm gonna go over it. I'm just joking. Um, okay, it starts out with practical rules. Um, here, my mother warned me about cults, and Rudolf Steiner does too, which is funny because some people will say like anthroposophy or Waldorf, they're cults, but only if you live it that way. Um, okay, so here we go. And because look, he's so clear here. No teacher of spiritual life exercises dominion over other human beings by means of such rules. Such teachers do not seek to restrict anyone's autonomy. And then regulate each of your words and actions so that you do not interfere with anyone's free decisions and will. So he's saying, like, basically reject anybody that's trying to tell you exactly how to do something and how to live your life and proselytizing and restricting people's autonomy. So he really is about freedom. And and, and I like that he just lays it out so clearly here. It's like, look, a spiritual teacher is not going to do this thing for you and tell you how to live your life. And I've seen examples of that. And it's really scary to watch. I'm sure you've all watched, like, again, Netflix. There's there, What was that? What was that show about the cult? Um, the really, like the Hollywood one that was, oh my God, it was so awful. But anyway, people will manipulate spiritual activity and um, turn it into a means of controlling people for money or sex or all kinds of things. Steiner's like, there's no way. No teacher, no real spiritual teacher is ever going to try to restrict your autonomy. Okay. Inner peace. Here we go. Create moments of inner peace for yourself. And in those moments, learn to distinguish the essential from the inessential. Okay. My friend Angela always talks about the essential and the inessential. And I'm always like, what is she talking about? He talks about this directly in relationship to meditation. So, you know, this is another one that I would say, what does it mean to you? And then he talks about, um, setting aside a brief period of time in daily life, and this is his quote, page 26, in which to focus on things that are quite different from the objects of our daily activity. Such moments give us full strength for completing our daily tasks. 
In these moments, we should tear ourselves completely out of everyday life. Our thinking and feeling lives should have quite different coloring than they usually have. We should allow our joys, sorrows, worries, experiences, and actions to pass before our soul. But our attitude towards these should be one of looking at everything we have experienced from a higher point of view. In the time we have set aside for ourselves, then, we must strive to view and judge our own experiences and actions as though they belong to another person. Okay, this threw me off because I was like, oh, I meditate, right? Like I, I get up generally and sit for five to 10 to 15 minutes and focus on a verse. But I wasn't really doing this like looking at myself and judging my own actions as if they belong to another person. I was really focused on the verse. So I'm a little confused here. Maybe y'all can help me out. <laughs> like, am I doing it wrong? Again, there's no wrong or right way here, though I think there are ways that can be more enriching than others. But um, let me know. Let me know what this means to you, this word meditation here. I find that if I don't meditate that day, um, I'm definitely missing something. And I'll, I'll get up and I'll be like, oh, well, I have to write this morning or I'm going to make this podcast and then I don't meditate. And then I'm just my day is off. Um, but I would like to hear your your perceptions. I, I thought I knew what this was about. I was feeling all good about myself, but maybe meditation means something different than I'm thinking. What do you think? We get to experience, you know, it starts talking about how we get to experience the higher human being within us um, because we contain this everyday self, but we also contain this higher human being, which is hidden or buried <laughs> until we awaken it. And it can only be awakened by us, each of us individually. Again, um, I try to have positive pictures of the future instead of like AI taking over the world. Also, I just saw Mission Impossible last night and there's this very powerful AI being in it. But it still had a, I still had like some very positive human message in it. Um, so I try to picture these positive things. So can you imagine if all of us had awakened our higher eye? What would that look like? Oh my goodness. So here it is. There's hope. He's offering us hope. For each of us who does this, a day will come when all around will become bright with spirit. Then to eyes we did not know we had, a whole new world will be revealed. And <laughs> again, if we were all walking around with these like beautiful, bright eyes and perceptions, um, the world would be a different place. Okay. Uh, also, like, don't worry. You don't need to change your outer life, he tells us. You know, we, we are not to become alienated from life. So again, you know, I'm not here on a mountaintop reading how to know higher worlds. I'm like sneaking it in between, you know, work meetings and uh, before I go to bed and when I wake up in the morning. Um, he says, on the contrary, we become able to live life more fully the rest of the day just because we are acquiring a higher life in those moments we set aside. So just those little moments of meditation, whatever that means to you, give us, give us this, this new picture. All right. What's going to happen? What's going to happen if we do all this? Guess what? We're going to be more peaceful, more confident, stronger, less angry. And this one was so interesting to me because I saw this with my brother, Connor Habib. He, when he started on this path with anthroposophy beforehand, he was one of those people that was really those people, and maybe you're one of these people, so critical, everybody's doing everything wrong, just just a pissed off person. And he says this, that 
the one of the first things that changed within him is he wasn't so angry anymore. How nice. So Steiner says, new thoughts replace the thoughts that previously weakened and hindered us. In the process, we begin to steer a safe and steady course through the ups and downs of life rather than being tossed about by them. Amen. Amen to that. And this is equanimity, which comes later in the book. And amen to this one too. And we're kind of getting to the end of this podcast. Thanks for sticking with me. Our whole being becomes more peaceful. We act with greater confidence and certainly in all our undertakings. We do not lose composure in the face of all kinds of events. Slowly as we continue on the path, we increasingly come to guide ourselves, as it were, rather than allowing ourselves to be led by circumstances and outer influences. How important is this right now? to not be led by circumstances and outer influences, to have that strength. I always sort of picture this like, you know, beaming rod like through my body that is guiding me rather than this like outward pull and, and push of, of the world. A few more quotes and then, you know, these questions that I'm living with and some exercises for you. You guys hanging in there? You, should, you can just pause and message me now. Too much talking, Laura. Too many quotes. Hopefully not. Uh, but if that's the case, let me know. Hey, I haven't run a podcast book club before. So, all right. Okay. There's this very moving picture that he presents on page 33 and 34. And he says, and, and I like, and this kind of relates to that sort of golden like beam I was talking about inside myself. Um, the center of our being shifts inward. We listen to the voices that speak within us in our moments of serenity. Inwardly, we associate with the spiritual world. And then a second life begins for us. I mean, I have three, you know, exclamation marks next next to this. This idea of a second life, I really feel that that is something that is becoming more and more present for me. And that's been over the last, I don't know, gosh, seven years or something, um, where I do have this other life, where there's this other perception happening. I'm not saying I'm a master of any kind in this way, but I do notice it. I do notice that I have this other part of my life. Okay, Steiner starts getting a little cheeky on page 36, and he says, it is often asked why we do not know anything for our experience before birth and death. This is the wrong question. Rather, we should ask how we can attain such knowledge. And this path teaches us that the most trivial tasks we have to carry out and the most trivial experiences that come our way are woven together with great cosmic beings and world events. So yes, the most trivial encounters, the most trivial things we have to do are connected with great cosmic beings and world events. So it's not like it's it's that it's all important, you know, which is like a lot of pressure. And I remember I, I had this happen when I was a, at Omega, like every single thing I did, you know, there was a, a time where I could not speak unless I spoke the truth. And which that seems easy, but like every single word was very important. I was like kind of deep down in this thing. It's like, well, you can take it that way and make yourself very serious and kind of boring, but, or <laughs> I'm just joking, but 
Um, not really. I was being very hard on myself. So you can take it that way and be very hard on yourself. Or you can be like, you know what? Me and this laundry, cosmic beings. Like everything we're doing, I'm doing this in devotion to my family. Um, I'm interacting with this human. There are spiritual beings here as well. And just expanding that perspective. Here are my questions for you. What does he mean by essential and non-essential? Do you think more people are awakening their higher human being? Are there organizations, this is really a big question for me. Do, do you think there are organizations or groups where this is stronger, there, where there are more of this higher human beings working there and present there? What are those organizations? What are those groups? I'd love to hear that. All right. At the end of the chapter, he kind of gives hints on what's to come. And he's talking about chapter two, preparation, illumination, and initiation. Here are some exercises before we jump into chapter two, which will hopefully be next week or the week after. I said this is a summer book club. I'm thinking it's going to be a little longer than the summer, but um, we'll see what happens. Uh, on page 21, he says, what Food is to the body, feelings are for the soul. Now, let me just say, I've got lots of feelings and we're going to talk about equanimity later um, and I'm still working on that one. But this one feeling, reverence, is something I think I can be in charge of a bit. So can you, here's your, here's your mission if you choose to accept it, um, can you look for good every day? Look for good and review that good before you go to bed and or when you wake up. Can you find something beautiful? Um, I center that feeling in my heart, and sometimes I say, thank you, thank you, thank you, three times. That's from like the secret or something like that, but I do um, in the morning center that gratitude and before bed in my heart, and thank you, thank you, thank you. That's That's my practice. I'd love to know yours. If you can't look for the good, if that's like not right now for you, which I will completely understand. Can you catch yourself in judgment or anger or fear or impatience? Um, not feel badly about it, but be that objective observer and just be like, oh, hey, look, I was so fearful right there. Or, wow, I was really angry right there. Um, so if you can't go for the good yet, and I mean, this is probably varies for all of us throughout the day. Um, I really like after 8 p.m. I'm not really looking for the good as much. <laughs> I'm just tired. Um, but can you can you notice anger, fear, impatience, any of those things? And just notice. And if you can go further and test out the weights as a, at the gym, for example, commitment free. You know, you don't have to make a commitment here. Just go go check out the uh, meditation gym. Uh, see if you can meditate one day this week. Maybe just five minutes of quiet, objective reflection. Um, a minute of trying to clear your mind, a minute with a verse, five minutes with a verse. If you want suggestions for verses, I can give you some. Um, there's also verses and meditations by Rudolf Steiner. I do like to use Rudolf Steiner's verses myself, but yeah, you can email me with questions about that. I am so grateful that you're tuning in. Please message me, email me, say hello to me, and uh, please share the podcast with others. Um, I know a lot of you have been doing that, and there are definitely more people following right now. So I appreciate it. And keep me posted. How is this chapter for you? I'm looking forward to chapter two. Bye. Bye.